0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA, member FDIC. I do bristle when people say, "Well, happiness is just a choice." Not really. It's hard, right? And and but at the same time, like all of us can become happier than we are today if we are, you know, incorporating some of these practices into our lives and building those mental muscles bit by bit.
1: That was Jonah Paquette on Psychologists Off the Clock. we are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships work and health
2: i'm dr debbie Sorensen, practicing in mile high denver colorado co-author of act daily journal and an upcoming book on act for burnout
1: I'm Dr. Yael Schonbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book,
3: Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoccom slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C.
2: Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order.
1: I'm here today with Jill to introduce an episode with author Jonah Peckett, who's written a couple of books, but we focused on his most recent book, which is titled Happily Even After. And we're releasing this episode on the week of Valentine's Day with intentionality because events like Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, they're... Intended to be happy times. But if you're not happy, either because you're missing family or comparing yourself to how happy other people seem, it can feel that much more painful. His book really offers some tools to build the happier muscle, whatever your circumstances may be. And I loved so many of the tools that he offered and so many of the insights he provided. Jill,
3: what did you think of this episode? Well, I absolutely loved this episode. I found it really compelling. And, you know, we've done a number of episodes about happiness. And I always wonder or maybe worry like, are we going to be adding something new that's going to provide value for our listeners? And I absolutely felt that way listening to this. You know, some of the things that I think resonated most with me is you guys really talked in the beginning about how. Building happiness, like it's a skill to be able to build in more happiness into your life, and it does not equate to an absence of pain. You know, that life is going to throw you hard curveballs all the time. And there are ways to still engage in these practices to build more positive emotion in in at the same time. Fast forwarding to the very end of the episode, I really liked the discussion that, you know, essentially it was like small things matter. So if you're really sad, you know, because it's Valentine's Day and you're feeling lonely, it doesn't mean you have to find a spouse tomorrow to turn things around. And that when you can really learn to show up for moments of awe or wonder, or to have one thing that you feel grateful for. If you can reach out to one person you're connected to that like, really these small things add up to have a really enormous impact on how we feel.
1: That's so well said, Jill. And I think you're pointing to something that I my mind always goes back to, which is growth versus fixed mindset in happiness. And this is an area of research that I just think has so much potential to impact how we feel about all sorts of things that feel just out of our control. And happiness is something we can grow regardless of our circumstances. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's not harder for some people than others. It doesn't mean that you are going to feel happy tomorrow. But there are actions that we each can take that can Cultivate greater happiness that can build that muscle that can help us to do better in the circumstances that we have. Jonah provides all sorts of really cool practices that you can try out along with him, even today. And I hope people get a a lot out of this episode. I am here with Jonah Paquette, who is a clinical psychologist, author, and keynote speaker specializing in the science of well being and the promotion of emotional fitness for individuals, teams, and organizations. He's authored four books, including Awestruck, The Happiness Toolbox, and Real Happiness. His keynote talks and workshops focus on themes including awe, gratitude, compassion, connection, and other principles for lasting well-being and emotional fitness. And we're here to discuss in depth his most recent book, the wonderful book, Happily Even After. Welcome, Jonah.
0: Thank you so much, and honored to be here. Been a big fan of your podcast for years, so this is a pinch myself kind of moment to actually be on with you.
1: Oh, that's amazing to hear. All right. So we are releasing this episode on Valentine's week, and I think it's a really apt time to be talking about finding happiness even when things aren't so easy. I think Valentine's week is a really hard time for people either who have lost somebody or who are single or who are feeling unhappy in relationships. And so you have a call to action in your book, Happily Even After, that really gets to this idea And I actually want to share this quote that you captured in your book. It's a quote from a webinar attendee of yours, where she says, I mean, the world is burning and we're here talking about happiness. Doesn't this feel a bit like, I don't know, a luxury? (laughs) So so it begs this question, how can we expect to build happiness in the face of hardship, heartache, and heartbreak?
0: I I remember that quote well, because it was one of those, uh, uh uh-oh, what's happening here moments when I was in the middle of, of teaching. Um, and it was and honestly, I, I was grateful in hindsight for the question because it's a really I think one that it makes a lot of sense. Um, you talk about topics like happiness and well being and it can sound, I think on the surface so frivolous, especially during a time where people are, you know, really struggling as they often are, you know, whether it's with on a personal level, whether it's societal ills, whether it's economic hardship, whether it's loss, grief. I mean, there's never a shortage of ways that we can be struggling. And so I recognize as somebody that talks a lot about these topics that, you know, it can sound a little bit askew on the surface. Um, So I, I think one of the first things I like to do is really back up and even think about what do we mean by this word happiness? Because I think we hear that word and I have in a very ambivalent relationship, believe it or not, with the term happiness, even though it's like in the title of three of my books, <laughs> um, because I think it's easy to think of this like hallmark version of happiness where we're just oh, feeling good all the time. And it's all about sort of just uh, pleasure and joy. And, you know, really, we want to think about what are we talking about with, with this clunky term happiness? There's been a lot of definitions over the years. Um, Gandhi said that happiness is when what we think, what we say and what we do are in harmony. I always like that one. Uh, then there was a great quote by Albert Schweitzer who said, uh, "Happiness is nothing more than good health and a bad memory," which people like <laughs> that one too. Um, but you know, we're really talking about three separate but interconnected ingredients. Um, and for listeners, I would say think of it like as a Venn diagram where the the pieces overlap. And what this looks like for each of us might look a little different. You know, some of us might have certain needs, whether it's you know based on culture, values, personality, that we're going to have different parts that, that resonate more. But it's really about these three parts. One is hedonic happiness, which is about positive emotional states. Right? Am I generally feeling joy, connection, love, gratitude, and, and so forth? But we sometimes stop there, and that's in some way, the least important of the three so deeper down in terms of lower levels we've got things like life satisfaction or as it's called evaluative happiness which is basically when i step back and look at my life as a whole how do i feel about things the status of my relationships my career my pursuits my hobbies and and so on Uh, and then really the the deepest most important layer is more of this eudaimonic happiness or meaning-based happiness Am I connected to something that's bigger than myself, whether it's through community, family, faith, causes that I, that I, that I serve and so forth. So put all that together and we've got, you know, positive emotions, but that's just one part, feeling satisfied with life as a whole. And then third meaning. And those are things that we can actually cultivate, not just during the smooth seas and the, and, the, and the easy times, but also, or especially, I think, when when times are difficult. And that's really what actually inspired me to write this book, was as someone who's been involved in positive psychology, largely speaking, for about 15 plus years, a lot of the focus has been on either the worried well, or how do we get someone from a plus two to a plus five, right? As opposed to um, when when life knocks us down, when life is kicking our butt, what can we do to actually use these skills, use these concepts, use these tools to turn things around and to move towards greater well-being, even when life is throwing us challenges.
1: I love that description because I do think traditionally psychotherapy has focused on helping people get from negative you know, depression back to baseline, whereas positive psychology is like from baseline and up. And what you're saying is a lot of these practices and this idea of cultivating greater happiness can sort of be practiced wherever you are. Wherever you are, you can get to a, a slightly better place by practicing things that improve your positive emotion, your life satisfaction, and, and connect you to your greater sense of purpose.
0: Yeah. And I used to even, being in this field would fall prey to that, where I would think to myself, okay, I'm working with someone who's depressed or anxious or stressed. We'll do all the other stuff first. We'll do CBT. We'll use ACT, all this stuff. And then once they're doing okay, then I can start talking about things like compassion, gratitude, and, and all that. And really, one of the things that opened my eyes with this was looking at just how much of this research in certain corners of it shows how some of these concepts like gratitude or awe or self compassion or mindfulness and, and many others, um, which overlap, by the way, I know with a lot of other approaches too. Uh, it's not like positive psychology is a corner on that market, but you know they're just as relevant and can be just as helpful when we are struggling. You know, to get us out of that place of suffering, out of suf- out, out of that struggle than when we're doing well. But yeah, our field, I think historically really does fixate on the minus five to minus two or minus five to baseline as opposed to what's up. Freud, great quote, said, the goal of therapy was to turn hysteric and neurotic misery into common everyday unhappiness. I always love that one. <laughs> <laughs> Not a great nice thing to funny. put on your business card though.
1: <laughs> That's funny. So I, I actually want to, Ask you about this term that you use, emotional fitness, mm-hmm. and what I love about it is that it really speaks to this idea that happiness is a skill, is something that you can practice and build, just like you can build, uh, you know, a, a skill in running or build a muscle. Yeah, I guess that's less of a skill and more of a of a way to strengthen a part of you that might be less less strong to begin with. Mm. And I love this idea because I, I really do think that we have this cultural myth that some people are just born happy and some people are born less happy. And the problem with that myth, myth is that there's some truth to it, yes. but there's it's also not the whole story. So I wonder if you can speak to why you use that term, building emotional fitness.
0: Yes, I write, I use that in my book and sort of when I'm giving talks, I think because Well, for a few reasons, but I think one is this implicit idea that we sometimes have of we have to wait for a problem to develop before we do anything about it. Um, And we don't do that with physical movement. We don't do that with how we eat. We don't do that with all kinds. There's all kinds of examples, right, where we are thinking to myself, "Okay, I'm going to get sleep. This this amount of sleep. I'm going to have this. You know, reach out to my social connections. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to eat right because that's going to also kind of help give me that foundation and buffer me against things." and So, when I talk about emotional fitness too, it's the idea that, you know, if we find ways to build these habits into our everyday lives, not waiting for problems to come up, but if, you know, if I regularly get into a gratitude practice or a meditation practice or make sure I'm fostering my social connections with other people or, you know, finding ways to make room for difficult emotions without getting stuck with them, that these are all really skills that are going to help not only me do better right now, but help buffer me when. The hard stuff comes, which is always going to come. I think that's, even though I talk a lot about happiness, the one money back guarantee I always give people is life will throw you a lot of crap. Life is going to knock you down. Life is going to throw you really challenging times ahead. And how can we sort of arrive at that from a place of strength and resilience? Um, So really looking at it as a skill, though, and I think that's really the main message I always like to tell people is, yes, there's other factors, right? Circumstances, support systems, our past, traumas, genetics, biology. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into that soup. I I do bristle when people say, well, happiness is just a choice. Not really. It's hard. Right. And, and, but at the same time, like all of us can become happier than we are today if we are, you know, incorporating some of these practices into our lives and building those mental muscles bit by bit.
1: Yeah. I always like to say I'm not a natural optimist, but I'm a dedicated one.
0: <laughs> yes, and that's, this is I come from a
1: neurotic lineage, but but with practice, and that's why I think I'm so attracted to the science of happiness is that it gives you things to do to build that muscle that are things that you can practice every day, and you really can see a difference, even though it doesn't undo your wiring.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I always like to describe a lot of these skills as simple but hard. Right? There's a difference between simple and easy. Um, it's hard to You know, dedicate ourselves to building a, you know, a gratitude practice, a mindfulness practice to become more self compassionate. If we're very used to being self critical and, and all the rest. But, you know, I also love the idea that we don't have to spend, you know, decades of our lives lying on a couch, sort of sharing our dreams to get there. We can actually like starting today begin to move towards these types of ideas bit by bit. Yeah.
1: Sorry Freud. <laughs> which,
0: which I I hate to do because you know, I, I hate to yeah. You know, I'm not trying to turn this into a bashing. Yeah.
1: Freud made valuable contributions, but it is true that I, he left a cultural myth that it requires many years lying on a couch 3 to 5 times a week to get to a healthier happier place and that is not what the science roundly shows.
0: Yes, that that that's it.
1: All right, so I do want to sort of give a nod to the question of toxic positivity. We recently mm. had Whitney Goodman on our right. show, mm-hmm. and I yep. think it's, but I think it's worth pausing here to distinguish between the kind of happiness that you're advocating for and toxic positivity.
0: Yeah, and, and I do touch on that briefly in the book because I think these days um, it's so easy to um, to go off the rails and, and to really alienate people, even if you're talking about. Concepts related to happiness, if you're not precise about what you really mean. So, you know, certainly what we're not saying is things like um, turn that frown upside down or just think happy or happiness is a choice or all that stuff, which, you know, you can run into this with all kinds of, even with gratitude, which, you know, I know we, I talk about a lot in the book. We know that gratitude is really potentially transformative for people struggling with depression. On the other hand, if I'm talking, if I'm working with a client who's struggling with depression and I say, well, Hey, you know what's really good for depression is gratitude. I think we just have to be more thankful. That is one of the worst things you could ever say to a person, right? And so we really want to distinguish between this sort of frivolous, toxic positivity, which I think has two sort of pieces that, that always, yeah, I'm always mindful of. One is just the simplicity of it, which is, you know, a lot of these things are much more nuanced and complex. But two, it's the idea that somehow happiness is the absence of painful emotions or that genuine happiness somehow means we don't struggle or we don't have moments of pain. And really I think it's crucial when you're talking about, you know, genuine happiness in this sense or whatever term by the way listeners prefer. Some people don't even like the word happiness. I say fine, use well-being, use emotional fitness, use you know whatever. Um but there's nothing about those types of states that we're cultivating that that means we don't make room for the difficult stuff too. And I think it's Really crucial that we, you know, we recognize that the human experience is complex and messy, and you can be a genuinely happy person and have times in your life where you're really struggling a great deal, and that these are not mutually exclusive. And in positive psychology, I think just a, a, a very micro history lesson. For many years, I think there was actually not enough pe- attention paid to that, and I think in whether you want to call it positive psych 2.0 or whatever, in more recent years. I think there is much more of a a recognition that, first off, we need all of our emotions. If if you could surgically excise sadness, anger, like that would be a really bad idea. Um, And that, too, you can be a genuinely happy person and, of course, still have struggles. Um, That's just part of being human.
1: So I don't know too much about the history in terms Mm -hmm. of the more uncomfortable emotions being left out in the field of positive psychology. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that.
0: Yeah, um and this is again broad strokes because there's always going to be exceptions to this and there's, you know, people that are weren't doing this. But I think for about the first decade or so of a lot of this this research on well-being, it fell prey sometimes to being a little bit of um happyology and a little bit too much of a focus on just um, you know, just just the positive. And by the way, that was made sense in some ways because you were correcting an imbalance that had existed a lot again, not universally, it's not like nobody was talking about this stuff. Existential psychology was focusing on this and all that, but uh, Maslow and others. But, you know, there was at least, I would say, somewhat of a focus too much on that as opposed to the way of integrating it, right? And I think, you know, what's changed in, in a little more recent years is even research looking at the benefits of painful emotions, right? The way that a lot of these things that we would quote unquote call negative emotions, which is overly simplistic, actually is a really crucial, necessary part of our lives that can help us in terms of moving towards well-being if we find ways to sort of work with it effectively and make sense of it and use it as valuable information to change our lives. So I think that's shifted a little bit where there's a bit more of a Nuance, and honestly, what 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 I think is happening over the years is a lot of these different fields are in some ways moving towards each other. A lot of traditional approaches are incorporating more of a lens of well being. A lot of these positive psychology approaches are looking at sort of ways to work with it. So maybe it's where we end up in, in a handful of years is more of a kind of a shared, universal, common factor approach that we can apply.
1: Yeah. It it seems like it would be more useful to be able to capture all of it. And I will say, I mean, as you're talking and thinking, my book about role conflict, work-parent work mm. conflict really talks about it in that way that we've often thought about work-family conflict. Then there's this other term, work-family enrichment. Mm. And what I have found is that the two are kind of, they go hand in hand. That part of how our roles help each other out in part is not despite, but rather because of the tension and the that exists between them. And that if we sort of are able to make space for that tension, there's actually a lot of benefit that we could find. So we don't want to get rid of the role tension. We actually want to approach it more strategically.
0: I love that. And I think, you you know, whether it's with regret, whether, I mean, there's all kinds of things in life that we can, we think of as, oh, this is something to be avoided as opposed to maybe there's, there's ways to make meaning from it, to give us lessons to that we can incorporate to change our life. And it's not so black and white all or nothing as we sometimes think with a lot of this. Yeah, yeah.
1: So that's actually a good segue. I I've been thinking a lot about regret because I will be releasing an interview with Bob Leahy, who wrote a book on regret called If Mm. Only. It's a terrific book. But regret is one of these things that makes us feel kind of rotten. Mm. And too much regret is not good, although some regret is quite helpful. But you have some interesting exercises that I love, um, including this one, which is remembering the bad. <laughs>
0: it's
1: kind of a twist on regret, regretting past experiences. So I wonder if you can talk about how remembering the bad can help our happiness and why we should practice that.
0: Yeah. And this is drawn, I have to give a shout out to uh, one of the great gratitude researchers out there, uh, Robert Emmons, Bob Emmons, um, who's written a great couple of great books on, on gratitude himself. Uh, he's also a fellow New York Yankees fan, so I, I like him for that reason too. No offense, I know you're in Boston, but um, you know he talks about how you know sometimes with gratitude it's not just about focusing on the good. That's how we tend to think about gratitude. It's like you know, what is something that I feel thankful for on sort of a basic level. But as he points out, like one of the real powerful ways we can have a sense of gratitude for my life today is to actually look at when things were not so good, you know, to look at times where we were really struggling either on a personal level, a family level, a societal level, you could do this on on many number of, any number of ways. Um, But if I think back to a time when, you know, I didn't know how, you know, how I was going to make ends meet, if I, you know, was really struggling on a personal level, going through a breakup, going through a health scare, uh, going through grief, that, you know, actually by thinking about that, reflecting on it, journaling about that, you know, getting in touch with that emotion. Number 1 it it puts our current situation in in a different contrast um so maybe the problems that we're struggling with today start to feel more manageable maybe they start to feel more surmountable, surmountable instead of overwhelming as they sometimes can the other thing it can do is highlight implicitly kind of look at highlighting the strengths that we all possess to think about well what enabled me to overcome that who did i lean on for support who helped me through that so you can start to go that direction too and so either way, instead of just kind of turning the page on and, and forgetting about those hard times, remembering them, making sense of them, using them to create a sense of not only meaning in the here and now, how did I overcome that, but actually giving us some valuable clues of how I can overcome whatever I'm going through now uh, is sort of the idea that I try to tap into when it comes to that in the book.
1: Yeah. And then you have this sort of the the contrasting exercise that I also really loved of mentally subtracting positive events, which I think is really cool. So can you explain that one? I I, I love all of the exercises and there's so many, we won't have time to get to all of them by any stretch. But what I really love about your book is there's like very distinct practices that you can engage starting today that can really help you cultivate- your emotional fitness,
0: <laughs> and my and my aim was really to do a, a shopping cart grab bag approach because I think I even say in the book, um, you might be reading through this, and and some of them you're going to be like, ah, oh, this is not going to work for me, and that's fine. Uh, you don't have to do it. Um, so that way you have kind of a, a Rolodex, if you will, of different... Do people still use Rolodex? Yeah. Sense? I
1: don't... You'll have to update oh. that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yes. Your Amazon cart approach. Yeah, your Amazon um, cart. There you go. Yeah. So with rem- with mental subtraction of positive events or mental subtraction of, of positive parts of life, the idea is that... And, and this was drawn from some interesting research on gratitude. So I'll just briefly talk about some of the original uh, thing that they found here in, the, in that study was a lot of the time when we think of gratitude we think of okay let me identify a person or a part of my life that I'm thankful for let me think about that thing or that person and think about how much better my life is because of that how great and that's nice i mean that 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 feels good what they found though which was interestingly enough was that something else for many people was actually a more powerful way of practicing gratitude which was you start off the same and you say well what is a person an opportunity an experience that i've had in life a job whatever it might be that's quote unquote good. Let me identify that. But then instead of just saying, "Oh, how great to think about that," they said to people, "I want you to imagine all the ways that this could not have existed in your life. All of the things that had to line up just so for this person, for this experience, for this job to to be part of your life. Like if I hadn't gotten on the subway that day, I wouldn't have met that person. If I hadn't randomly ended up at that school versus this school." I wouldn't have gotten into that, you know, met that mentor. That, in other words, life is this, you know, meandering path of all these little decision points that we don't even consciously realize, and they have to line up perfectly, basically, for us to be where we are today, in any way, good or bad. So, anyway, identify that source of you know goodness in our lives, but then to say how easily could that not exist, and then think about how much worse life would be if I didn't have that thing, that person, that experience, that job, whatever whatever I'm focusing on. And that by doing that for a lot of people, it actually makes them feel more grateful for that thing as opposed to just focusing on, oh, I'm so grateful for this person. Like you could think about this with a friend or a significant other. If these 50 things hadn't lined up just so, I wouldn't have met that person. I wouldn't be with that person. I wouldn't have that person in my life and so on. How much worse would my life be as a result of that? And that can be a really kind of transformative way to uh, make us feel feel more grateful. And by the, taking one page from that, I, I write about this with awe, actually. It's a nice way for us to just remind ourselves of just how special almost any experience we have is. Um, like the odds of any of us dying at some point by my rough calculations is like one in one, which is a bit of a bummer. But the odds of any of us living is has been estimated to be, I forget the number offhand, but someone even tried to figure this out. It's like the most infinitesimal number that you can imagine. It's as close to zero as you get without being zero. Like if you think about every ancestor that had to live long enough to pass their genes along, every... Everything you know, for the particular sperm and egg to get together, for for you know, for our planet to exist at the exact distance between the sun and the earth. I mean, you could go in a hundred different ways, and it's literally the smallest number that you can get without being zero. And then the earth being around as long as it has for us to have this moment right now is again as unlikely as you get. And yet here we are. And through that lens, it doesn't mean that everything's you know fun and games and, and unicorns, but. It certainly shifts our perspective to realize that, like the good times, the bad times, all of life, this whole mess of life, is truly a, a rare gift. That you know, everything, everything would suggest we wouldn't get it, except here we are right now receiving it. Um, and I think when we think about through th- thing that through that way, the unlikelihood of existence, the unlikelihood of this moment that can be both a gratitude exercise. It can be an awe exercise. It could be, you know, I'm rambling, but whatever you want to call it, it could be another way to just really shift our perspective. I think
1: that's my mind is kind of blown. Give me a moment here (laughs) (laughs) that it's crazy to think about. It's true um, that so many unlikely events had to follow one another for this moment to arrive. And that, even just recognizing that even if there's pain in the moment, that it's kind of a miracle. It's like almost magical.
0: That's definitely how I try to think. About, and by the way, if anyone's listening, don't worry. I am as human as the next person. Runs, um, <laughs> I don't always have this fr- frame of mind. I sweat the small stuff as much as anyone. But I do think when when you can sort of pause, step back and think to myself, How unique and how rare and and what a privilege, really, to to have any of the experiences that we do, the joys, but also the pains. Um, You know, it it gives our life a different, I think, sense of meaning um, and, and puts it into a different light.
1: Yeah. So I, I actually wanted to dive a bit more into Awe because you do have sure. this entire book, uh, Awe Struck, that is just wonderful. I had a chance to read it Thank and you. it's terrific. And um, you dedicate a section of Happily Even After to Awe as well. And you just gave like this great example of how we can experience it. But I w- almost wonder if we can back up a little bit mm. and have you define what is Awe and how does it relate to happiness?
0: Yeah, Um so this was a topic I got really into in the last few years. Um, people think I'm a, I'm a strange person for dedicating a couple of years of my life to just studying, learning about, writing about, talking about this, this unique emotion. But it really is a fascinating emotional state, uh, in my opinion at least. So these moments of awe, these moments of wonder uh, turn out to be really powerful for our mental health, for our physical health, for our relationships. Uh, to define it, uh, just off the bat, you know, there's I think there's the, the jargony sort of way that it would be defined in, in articles, which I'll give you. I think the informal definition is just as important and just as relatable, which is basically like the moments of life that make us go wow, the moments that give us goosebumps, the moments that we want to pinch ourselves because it doesn't feel real. Um, I think it's just as useful. But if we think about the, you know, to operationalize it a bit, researchers who talk about awe, they talk about it as, you know, we have an experience that has two two components one we come across something that's vast something that's bigger than ourselves that's part one and that could be by the way in like the literal sense like i'm looking up at the night sky i'm looking up at an impossibly tall skyscraper a beautiful you know bit of architecture but it could also be like in the idea realm like you watching your kid take their first steps is not vast in the way that like the ocean is vast but it's just as vast in its own way or listening to a you know a soul-touching piece of music or watching an incredible athlete perform, you know, whatever it might be, there's vastness can come in a lot of shapes and sizes. So the first thing is we encounter something that's vast, that's bigger than us. Second is there's something about the experience that blows our mind, that challenges our assumption, that kind of exceeds what I thought I knew about the world, other people, um, which they sometimes will call transcendence or accommodation as the second piece but basically, the idea is if I know exactly what I'm gonna see, it might be big, but it might not inspire awe. Like if I see the same exact mountain over and over again, I may not experience awe, even if the place is exactly the same as it always was, because I wouldn't have that second part of transcendence or accommodation. But, anyways, you put those together, and you could see how that would apply to all kinds of parts of life um, moments of love and connection with people, changing colors of leaves. Gazing out at the ocean or the mountains, listening to music um and 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 looking at beautiful art, so anyways, I got really fascinated by this topic, but one of the things that got me really interested in a, just a real brief aside was do you ever go down those like wikipedia rabbit holes?
2: Right? yes, too okay.
0: often <laughs> I was going down one of those I remember um and somehow I, I i like I'm a little bit of a space geek, I don't understand any of the astrophysics. I'm not smart enough to understand like. Any of that, but I love like looking up at stars. I have a telescope. Um, and I've always said like one of my dreams would be, you know, which probably won't happen, but to like actually go up and and see the earth from outer space and you know, whatever. So, anyways, I was reading this Wikipedia rabbit hole. I was going down this Wikipedia rabbit hole reading about astronauts who had gone up and were seeing the earth from outer space. And there's even a term for that called the overview effect which is, you know, you look down and you see our huge planet reduced to the size of a little, you know, pale blue marble. But what got me really fascinated with it, I remember, was not so much like the descriptions or the pictures of it, but what happened next, which is that almost universally, a lot of these people came back like forever changed. Some of them became, you know, and gave up their worldly possessions. Some of the astronauts entered you know, deep contemplative practices. Um, Some of them started nonprofits. Some of them became environmentalists, but like almost universally that mega dose of awe led to these really drastic changes and almost seems similar to what you hear about, like with some of the psychedelic experience and some of that research coming out too, of like this flashbulb moment changing the trajectory of of someone's life. So that got me really, and by the way, David Yadin would be a great person for you to interview on your podcast. If you ever. Y-A-D-E-N. He did a lot of that research on the astronauts. I um, think he's at Hopkins now, if I'm not mistaken. But anyways, uh, so I got really interested in, in awe for that reason. It turned out there was this huge emerging research coming out on just the um, psychological health and social benefits of these moments of wow, which I got really into. And that's what led to uh, to Awestruck.
1: Yeah, Well, as you're talking, I'm thinking about a recent experience. My middle son, who's in fourth grade, got an assignment to do a diorama of a national landmark, and Mm -hmm. he was assigned the Grand Canyon. And so as a part of his research, we... YouTube videos of the Grand Canyon and animals because my youngest who's in kindergarten is obsessed with animals. And we wanted to know which animals were native to the Grand Canyon. And Mm -hmm. it was so fun to watch them be awestruck by the awesomeness. And we were just watching on YouTube on our computer. So it wasn't like even this really life altering moment. But for me, it was powerful to watch them be sort of struck by, wow, it's so big and so deep. Mm -hmm. And wow so many you know centuries that it took for that formation to happen in that exact way and it, it was it was sweet and awesome
0: yes and by the way great example because you know there's sometimes these different layers to all experiences there's the actual like physical for lack of a like the grand canyon right you see it but then the mental part of like well how old is this and how did it get developed and what's ha- you know that's a whole other layer like you can look up at the stars great but then you can realize well everything in my body is made from matter descended from those stars and i'm looking at light that's millions of years away like there's a whole other sort of sort of psychological emotional intellectual whatever you want to call it layer to it but by the way you also were watching on a screen on a youtube in instantaneous time a video of this ancient part of the world coming through your eyes in real time, seeing the impact that it had on another human being on a little person like that, like that all, all of that's amazing. Right. And it's a good example of like, we, we sometimes get so accustomed to things that we don't realize. Like some of the things that we encounter every day are like miracles and magical, but we just have blinders on. And I think sometimes and don't see it like us having this conversation right now. You on the East Coast, me on the West Coast, through a screen. It's like futuristic Jetsons-level stuff. but we take yeah, it for granted.
1: We take it for granted. Yeah, as a part of my mindfulness practice, my meditation mm. practice. And I don't meditate like for hours on a cushion like it's mm. like a few minutes mm-hmm. most days. But yeah. one of the things that I really am deliberate about practicing is one minute that is dedicated to just being really appreciative for something that I typically take for granted. Yes. And I find it really powerful and it kind of carries through the day because it it is we just habituate to whatever is around us and like you're saying like this thing that we're doing right now is incredible it is wild we would not have thought that this could ever happen you know a decade ago
3: mm-hmm.
1: and here we are just taking it for granted and it takes practice not to just default to that taking it for granted but it's not a difficult practice it's just you have to do it deliberately
0: absolutely because i think our mind habituates so easily we get used to good things in life i mean this is one of the you know we know we know that for most of us that's that's how it goes so number one we don't want to judge ourselves when we do that because that is just called being a human but to your point like that that is a practice that i write about in Awestruck 2 and that i love to do with people because i think when we hear that word all we sometimes also think like we think grand canyon we think night sky we think once in a lifetime moments but I would say even more important is to get in touch with those moments of wow that we do take for granted. Um, and I'll sometimes invite people just to say wherever you are joining from, like when you could be in your room at home, you could be at work, you could be outside, like just look around your field of vision, wherever you find yourself and notice how many things you can see, touch, feel that would have been mind-blowing even ten years ago, let alone a hundred, let alone a thousand, let alone ten thousand. Like we really are surrounded by these incredible things, but that we do get used to and we forget how special they are.
1: Yeah. So let me switch the question. Practicing awe requires deliberate attention in in times where we're doing fine. But you suggest that it's even possible to experience awe in darker times, in times of heartbreaker or hardship. And I wonder what kind of practices you recommend for doing that. So if we're in emotional pain, having a hard time, hmm. how can we access experiences of awe?
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'll back up, one of the things that really struck me in, in learning about awe was similar to when we've talked about some of the other concepts around well-being and happiness but you know incredible research coming out on how moments of awe even help people with post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms incredible research coming out about how it can boost our mood lower stress um in a time of record loneliness it's one of the most connecting emotions out there um you know there's there's a lot of benefits to all but I would say some of the absolute top of the heap ones that you see are actually it's it's been referred to as the ultimate collective emotion because when we experience this emotion we feel closer with others we feel more connected to the group to the world around us to the universe like it has this very binding quality to it so you know I think if you think about so many of the things that we struggle with right now in the world with record rates of stress depression trauma um record rates of loneliness in the United States, this experience actually can be a balm for not, – not to say it's a cure-all for any of it, but it, I, I was struck really by how much many of these things that we struggle with individually and collectively can be uh, at least somewhat helped by these moments of awe. So instead of just being this like, oh, when life is good, I'll notice the beauty around me. Actually, when life is hard is when we should ex- get in touch with this. But you know, in terms of like how we do that or what we do that, that's good. it's going to be on the one hand a really individual thing because what gives you a sense of awe might give me a shrug and mm-hmm. and vice versa. So I always like to talk to people about potential experiences of awe as opposed to like you're going to experience this emotion because I could go to the Grand Canyon. I hate to say it, and if I'm busy thinking about work or email or the score of the Knicks game, like. <laughs> I'm not going to experience all, even if I'm looking at this incredible, awe-inspiring place. And so we don't. I, I'll never forget. I, I had a friend visit me in California when I first moved out here, and he says, "Take me to you know something that's very California." So I took him to Mirror Woods, which is this beautiful redwood grove near me. Yeah. And I'm looking at around, and it's the spiritual experience. I'm like, we don't have things like this in Brooklyn, where I just moved from. And about ten minutes in, he turns to me. He says, "So is there anything else to see here besides the trees?" <laughs> So it did not impress him very much. But, you know, he can listen to a particular band and get a sense of awe from that music that I'm like, eh, what the heck is this? So it's really, so that's, I think, just as a long aside, but I think it's important to remember. That's like, an important
1: aside and a great anecdote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think for for when we're struggling, I think um, for one thing, anything that can get us in touch with sort of other people, right, is going to be an important thing. Because so much of, Various psychological elements have to do with loneliness. So the awe example you gave of like this shared moment of doing this with your family, of doing this with your with your with your kids, looking at the Grand Canyon, I think is a great example because that's a very sort of binding motion. So if, if there's a way to share the experience with others, that's always I think one important piece. But I think too, you know, getting in touch with just how vast the world and the universe around us can lead to this shift in perspective that when we are struggling, we don't tend to really have. like We tend to be very myopic. We tend to have tunnel vision. We tend to get stuck and, and fixated on whatever particular problem we're going through, which is all very real, of course, by the way. But if we can kind of remind ourselves of our – so there's a phenomenon in all called the small self-effect, which basically means when you encounter something that's vast, that's bigger than you, You feel small, but not in a way that's threatening or negative. Not like, oh, my life is meaningless. So if I look up at the night sky, a sunset, the moon, the ocean, mountains, you know, vast places or parts of life, that can actually, you know, lend this very powerful shift in perspective where it puts whatever we're going through in a little bit of a different light. So that's one kind of powerful way that we can think about that when we're struggling. I also think things that can kind of tap into that sense of shared humanity. So if we learn about people that are doing amazing things to change the world and have an awe, you know, it was just MLK Day a couple days ago. Like That's a great example of like, we can feel awe from people's courage. We can feel a sense of awe from inspiring acts that people do by people who are doing amazing things to change the world. So I think if there's any message I, I like to give with awe, it's that these moments matter and that they're... Much more at our fingertips than we sometimes tend to think. It could be, yes, it could be the Grand Canyon, but it could just as easily be those moments of connection with someone we love, and we're like, "Wow, this is actually really special." It can be looking up at the night sky, but it can just as easily be seeing a hummingbird outside and say, "Like, wow, I get to share this moment, this experience, this planet with things that feel like they should be out of science fiction." Practically, they're amazing. So, yeah, I, I, I digress, but I think you know. I don't get too caught up with the sort of where we find it. I think of it more as an open book with with clients or with people that I talk about to say, what parts of life give you these moments? And then how can we take one step towards maybe putting ourselves in a position to potentially experience it, knowing that there's not going to be a guarantee, of course.
1: Yeah. So I I love so much of what you're saying, but one thing I want to just pull out is what's happening in our mind space when we have these opportunities to experience awe. And I think your story of your friend going to Muir Woods and or you going to the Grand Canyon while thinking about work really illustrate this, which is, you know, our minds are often chattering away. And so these awe inspiring experiences that could be at our fingertips just aren't because we're not present for them. And so that's a part of the practice that I think is something that most of us need to be deliberate about because our minds do. They chatter away. We we do sweat the small stuff and we get all caught up in it and we miss kind of what's right in front of us. And, you know, I have experiences like this every day as a parent where my kids will say something funny, but I'll be thinking about, you know, a work project that I'm behind on as usual or Mm -hmm will be running late to school and my little one will grab my hand and it like, I need to remind myself, like feel his little hand in yours. This is so sweet, but I'm like so stressed out about being late that it, it really requires me to like pull back, take a breath and notice that, that that moment is really special.
0: I love so much of those examples. And I think what you, what you say is so true of just, first off, we're, we are we are going to miss on a lot of these things. We are going to miss out on a lot of these magical moments because that's just how we are built. And so I think first for listeners really to remember, this is not an invitation to beat ourselves up. Oh, I should be feeling this. I should be feeling that. It's like, no, you're you're, you're, you're a human being as, as we all are. But can we have that intention and make a little more contact with the present moment, have a little bit more sort of uh, less multitasking in our lives, be a little bit more present, With whatever we are encountering. I think, as you said, like awe and mindful awareness really are this bi-directional sort of, they feed each other. The more mindful we are, the more that we notice these opportunities for awe. And interestingly enough, when we experience awe, it's one of the most present focusing, for lack of a better term, experiences that we can have, all the way down to things like decreased activation of our default mode networks in our brain, like that almost shuts off line. Like we're very centered. We're very present. We're very connected to the moment when we experience this. So it really to me is a, is a nice bi-directional relationship between on and, and that sort of mindful awareness that you speak to.
1: Yeah. And I want to bring back this, uh, running thread that you had offered about, uh, awe being a very interpersonal sort of mm. connected emotional experience and, uh, I guess it doesn't, you can experience awe totally on your own, but there's often a real uh, human connectedness element to it. And you have a section in your book where you talk about practices of connection. And just recently, Robert Waldinger, who is the director of the Harvard study, came out with a, a new book. His new book is The Good Life. And his study and evidence from hundreds and thousands of other studies really show the importance of connections. And, and you highlight that in your book. But there is this important question of, how do we find connection in hard times, you know, when we are feeling isolated, either sort of in our mental space, we're interpreting that, you know, nobody else understands, or we are like functionally alone, like people have ended relationships, or they're widowed, or uh we're in a pandemic and stuck in our houses alone, Um And I think you offer a lot of really creative ways to think about increasing connectivity, even in times that can be quite challenging, just Mm -hmm. at at a very logistical, practical level.
0: Yeah. Well, I think first of all, I mean, with awe, it's an interesting relationship between awe and connection because when we feel a sense of awe, even if it is alone, it leads us to feel more connected with others, which I think is just a really fascinating little nugget because we could be looking up at the night sky. Like when I go in and go stargazing, there's nobody else around. I'm, which by the way, when I hear a twig snap and I think that it's a mountain lion out here in California, that's a whole other, I'm not in awe, I'm in, in terror at that point. But, um, you know, I could be up there, look, you know, looking up at a planet, right? And nobody's within sight. And yet when I have that sort of that moment of wow, I feel more connected. So I think one of the interesting things that's come out from that, Harvard studies, yes, time with people matters, but actually, one of the things that really matters too is that felt sense of belonging, that felt sense of connection. And listeners can probably relate. Like, we've all felt lonely in a crowd, and we also probably many of us can think of that person that. And I've got a couple of people that come to mind too. Of like, maybe you haven't seen them in five years. Maybe you see them once every eighteen, or whatever. But you know that that person would be there for you if you needed them, and so. Kind of, it's not always just about like how much time am I interfacing, and this was really important during the pandemic, I think, to not just think about how can I sort of constantly be around people, but actually more how can I feel close with people, how can I feel that sense of belonging to the community, to the you know, and that's just I think another interesting piece there. But you know, I think like with in happily even after I have that a whole chapter on. So the benefits of connection. And of course, I talk about that that study, which is one of my favorite studies. It's amazing.
1: It's amazing that it's such a long running study. They've collected so much data. And the main take home is we need good
0: relationships in our life. I love things like that, right? It doesn't have to be as complicated as we sometimes make it. It's like, okay, here's what 90 years of research says, (laughs) have have good relationships. Um, But I think it's a good call to action because a lot of us don't always prioritize. And of course there's going to be barriers, but a lot of us think to ourselves and I'm guilty of this sometimes of like, well, I'll reach out to that person when life gets a little settled down or I'll, you know, make time when things feel a little bit smoother or right now I just want to zone out and watch TV and, you know, been a busy day. And I think, you know, if we all think to ourselves each day, it could be even just a sing- single moment like a little self-reflection for 5 minutes of Is there one small step I could take right now towards connection? Maybe it's setting up that coffee date with somebody. Maybe it's just sending a text to a loved one and saying, Hey, I'm thinking of you. Let's, let's talk soon. Maybe it's, you know, using social media in, in not to start arguments, but to actually like connect with somebody that we, we don't see as much. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that we can think about it, but I always think of it more as, you know, it doesn't mean doing a 180. It doesn't mean we have to sort of go from zero to sixty so quick. It's just like, is there one step I could take today towards connection? One person I could reach out to? One way that I could show love? One way that I could express what someone means to me? Um, you know, and, and there's not a right or wrong answer to any of those. I always definitely of the opinion, though, of like one degree changes repeated over time is really going to one you know one percent more connection tomorrow is is going to be compounding interest over time. Um, if we keep it up.
1: Yeah. I love that S- small changes. And I'll share that one practice that I love that I picked up from a book called love 2.0 by positive psychology researcher, yeah. Barbara Fredrickson. Playbook. It's a great book. And, um, she talks about doing a sort of end of day reflection slash meditation, which I do like after I'm in bed, if I'm f- particularly, if I'm feeling a little bit lonely that day is to just pause and reflect on, The most connected moment that you had that day. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was. A text, maybe like that's all you got. Maybe it was with a client. Maybe it was with the barista who gave you your Mm -hmm. lovely cup of coffee. Um, Maybe it was with a pet. Maybe it was with yourself, but just whatever was the most connecting thing moment in your day and just spend some time sort of marinating on that memory to kind of magnify it. So even if you didn't have a lot, really take advantage of what you do have. And the reason that I like that and is going to tie to the next question that I have because I love that you talk about self-care as not always doing another thing, but that sometimes it can mean doing one less thing, which Mm -hmm. I think is a beautiful thing because so much of the self-help literature, it can feel like, oh my God, I'm already so overwhelmed and there are just yet more practices that I have to do. So I wonder if you can talk about how you um, advocate for self-care.
0: Yeah, and by the way, um, I love the example you gave too, because I think we don't always remember this, right? But it's like, when I'm thinking about something, good or bad, my mind and my brain are basically acting very similar to when that thing was happening, right? So, if I think about the person that cut me off in traffic and I'm ruminating about it, it's as if they're cutting me off in traffic over and over again. If I think about the bad interaction I had, it's as if that interaction is happening over and over again. And by the way, this is not a new concept. You know, The, the Buddhists have talked about this for thousands of years suffering being two arrows and there's the thing that happens and then it's our mind's reaction to it. But I think it's so important to remember that like that works both ways. It's not just for the lousy stuff, the stressful stuff, the difficult stuff. It's for the beautiful parts of the day too. So it's like if I'm savoring and holding on to and reflecting on a positive moment, a positive memory, a positive interaction, I've actually activated many of those same neural pathways in my brain over and over again as if that good moment had happened 5 times 10 times 20 times and from a well-being standpoint that is such a important meta skill right that's like we have the good experience but we sometimes forget good experiences good moments can just you know be gone the next second so how can we hold on to it and uh, i'm a big you know rick hansen's a great person with with this stuff too if listeners are are curious but you know that that idea of neuroplasticity, positive neuroplasticity that way, I think is really important. Um, yeah. So with, with self-care, I was, I, you know, when I, when I talk and write about this, I, I'm always struck as you basically uh, uh, did a great job of, of, of highlighting is, you know, when you're writing a book and, and you've written a book and um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because you, you're giving ideas. Oh, this is a great idea. But you always have to realize, like for a lot of people, this is just one other thing, right? Life is already bursting at the seams. How am I supposed to set aside 20 minutes to meditate? How am I supposed to set aside 10 minutes to do this, that, or the other? And, you know, you could very easily, it could just feel like a chore if you're not careful for that. And I think with self-care, especially, that's like an area that people have gotten so like if you say the word self-care, people now think, okay, I'm doing these 10 things. And I think it's a very simple concept, but I have to give credit to my my colleague at work because when we would teach a course on happiness, we had a week on self care, and my uh, my my good colleague and friend, name is uh, Dr. Patricia Eaton. She's a great positive psychology person as well, and and she would always say, you know, let's remember that sometimes for some people, self care is doing more, but for a lot of people, self care is actually doing less. If you are the working mother who's like struggling, you know, dealing with fifty things at once saying, well, why don't you go add to that plate is going to feel really daunting. Maybe it means saying, is there one thing I can give up? Is there one part of life that I could take a time out? Can I take 10 minutes just to breathe and sit in bed before I go deal with the stuff at home? And I think we sometimes forget that when it comes to this broad concept of self-care.
1: Yeah. yeah. I love that. I I am always excited when I hear people giving me advice of take a thing off your plate, do less. (laughs) Because I think that so many of us feel, as you just said, that life is really bursting at the seams. And there is so much evidence behind doing some of these activities. And I think, you know, they're all great activities, but we need to sort of see it in context and that if your life is over full and doing another thing, even if it has evidence Mm -hmm. behind it is going to overwhelm you, then it is worth just pausing and making sure that y- you have space, t- as you said, to breathe, to just yeah. kind of recenter. That That is something that that's sort of one of my big New Year's resolutions is like take things off the plate, subtract, which is um, a concept that we've talked about on this podcast before subtraction. And I think it's yeah. really an important one. So I'm always excited when You're I was really excited to do that. that. We? No, we're not. Our brains are not wired for subtraction, but mm-hmm. it is really important. And so I, I love that you advocate for that
0: yeah and i think and if you're not going to subtract i would also say for people to really feel empowered to look for the types of skills as you say that can be done briefly that aren't overwhelming and daunting like you talked about breathing and i'm always a big fan of a lot of breath work and work by people like um dr emma sapala i think is her name at yale and um you know one of the things like that's probably the quickest way for us to change our physiology is like through 5 minutes of controlled breathing of pursed lip breathing and like you don't have to spend 5 hours doing something it can be you know very short if that's all we have time for and sometimes the short stuff that takes a few minutes is is all that all that we need to just reset our system a little bit totally
1: Well, there's so much more in your book that I would have wanted to get to optimism, finding your why, uh, communication skills that are so useful, being kind and, and sort of how to practice that. So I highly recommend that people pick up your book. And I also just wanted to invite you to share where, where can people follow you and get more advice and wonderful teachings that you have to offer?
0: Oh, thank you for the kind words about the book. Um, Probably the easiest first place to find me is just through my website, which is jonapaquette.com. Um, and on there you can find links to various social media. After years, by the way, of being kind of a reluctant social media person, I'm, I'm, I'm decided to go, to go into that fea- uh, head first. So yeah, you could find me on Instagram at uh, Jonah Paquettes ID. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Dr. Paquette. I'm on, um, LinkedIn. You could just look for my name, Jonah Paquette. And yeah, wherever you want to connect with me there. And of course, my website has information about my books, upcoming talks, events.
1: And you have a newsletter that people can subscribe to, is that yes, right? Yes.
0: Thank you for re- reminding me. Yes. So I do send out a newsletter. I have a monthly newsletter that's kind of a full newsletter called The Habits of Happiness, um, which is you know links, book recommendations, articles, things like that of other people doing amazing work related to well-being. Um, and I've just started to have a It's a mini newsletter that comes out on the weeks of the month that the big one doesn't come out called uh, Three Good Things Thursday. So it's just three quick bullet points, micro newsletter, but just articles, resources, links that might be of interest to people. So yeah, you can sign up for that on my website. And by the way, if you do sign up for that on my website, you can also get uh, your free copy of my uh, 10 Habits of Happiness e-guide to download as well.
1: Awesome. Well, what a terrific resource. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. Thank it was you. wonderful to, to get to talk to you.
0: It is so nice to to connect. And I've been an admirer from afar of your podcast for years, and obviously your amazing book that came out. And uh, But it's also so nice to meet with somebody and who's doing all these amazing things. And it's just so nice and down to earth. So it's, it, made, it made this very, very easy. So thank you.
1: Thank you. Hey, psychologists Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you got to the end of this episode, that you also love to geek out about books in psychology.
3: If you don't know where to store all your books and people are already complaining that you talk about this book that you're reading all the time, then why don't you join us once a month to read a book together?
1: If you're interested in joining us, we hope you are. Just send an email to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you more information.
2: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon.
1: You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold.
2: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website offtheclockpsych.com.